If you're an author or plan to be one, get excited because this podcast is for you. Book Marketing Mentors is the only podcast dedicated to helping you successfully market and sell your book. If you're ready for empowering conversations with successful marketing mavens, then grab a coffee or tea and listen in to your host, international best-selling author, Susan Friedman. Welcome to Book Marketing Mentors, the weekly podcast where you learn proven strategies, tools, ideas, and tips from the masters. Every week, I introduce you to a marketing master who will share their expertise to help you market and sell more books. Today, my special guest is a copywriting expert. Hannah Shamji is a counselor turned copywriter and qualitative researcher. As head of research at Copy Hackers Agency, she helps tech companies drive growth on the backbone of a deeper understanding of their customers. She also teaches copywriters and marketers the A to Z of conversion research, from how to get research buy-in through to eliciting meaningful voice of customer data in a customer interview. Hannah, what a pleasure it is to welcome you to the show, and thank you for being this week's guest expert and mentor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's a pleasure. When I heard you first through Copy Hackers, because I'm a devotee of <laughs> that program, I was like, okay, Hannah has got so much that she could offer our listeners Let's just get into this whole idea of understanding the customer better, because I know that one of the mistakes we often make, and myself in particular, is that we think we know what our audience wants without necessarily asking them. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about the importance of, let's say, interviewing your audience members and maybe prospects to find out what they really want versus what we think they need. It is definitely an exercise that is challenging for the ego, for sure. This notion that, you know, we know our book, we know our thing, whatever it is that we want to market. And to sort of release that a little bit by chatting with our customers or engaging with our audience it can feel challenging to do, but really is the root of being able to engage them in a meaningful way, in a consistent way, and not kind of have like a fluke spike in sales, for example. But it absolutely is a challenge. It's something that I'm familiar with myself. And I would encourage folks, as I always tell myself, to kind of put that part on pause. The risk of not talking to your audience, not understanding them on their terms, in their words, is huge, right? For your business, for the success of any of the work that you're trying to do. So as much as it can feel like something that you can kind of push to the side, please don't. It can either be an exercise in confirming what you already know, which is great validation, tells you that you're on the pulse of your audience, or an exercise in actually informing your next steps in a way that feels like you're not guessing and going on gut feel. You know, you get actual data to ground your marketing decisions. And in a world where marketing can kind of feel like intimidating and you have a lot on the line, 
the more you can back it into, the better. I definitely encourage acknowledging that that mistake is very common and, you know, erring on the side of challenging the part of you that thinks you know to at least just check it out, you know, scope it out, have that conversation, set it up so that you can actually confirm and see what's on the other side of your own hunch, if it is uh, valid or not, you know? Well, I'm pleased I'm not the only one in that <laughs> space, but thank you for, conf- you know, confirming that. Yeah. Is there a right or wrong time to do these interviews? Good question. I would typically say at the outset is better before you embark on any part of your marketing talking to your customers, understanding them, understanding your audience can really help anchor your marketing strategy, your next steps in marketing. It can give you insights from what medium is best to communicate with them all the way through to what you should actually say on this Facebook post or in that particular email. So the sooner the better. At the same time, if you are kind of midway in and this isn't something that you may be led a particular piece of work with, it's totally okay to kind of interject, you know, if there's a spot in your marketing, a gap, something else you'd like to try or something you want to optimize, have that conversation. It's definitely not, you've missed the chance and the window is no longer there. And it's also not a one and done thing. You know, the data that you collect and the insights that you collect from your customer are not eternal. Of course, you know, this is something that maybe they'll stay alive for about a year, depending on the industry, but there's no wrong time. I'll say that there's a more right time, the sooner the better, but there's absolutely no wrong time for sure. Definitely do it before you produce the product rather than after you've produced it. Would you agree with that? Yes, I absolutely would. Because I think it would just streamline the process so much. You know, it would just sort of take guessing out of the picture. And it doesn't take away your ability to come in with your own expertise and your own creativity and sort of weigh in there. But it does help you give a bit of a framework and at least know what you're making decisions against So before, absolutely, can kind of save you from running the risk in, you know, you're kind of running down one direction and it, you know, you finish the product and then you're wondering, well, what happened? Why isn't there uptake? So this can absolutely be that safety net before you even run the risk of that happening, for sure. This is the what. Let's talk about the how. How would they go about even starting this process? Yes, a lot of it is tapping into personally connecting with your audience. Flag a few folks that you're comfortable reaching out to. They are either past like customers that have already entered your world, ideally, and set up a conversation with them. You know, you don't need a ton, even as few as, I hate to say three, but if three is all you can get, go for three, ideally somewhere between seven and 10 conversation. So we're not talking a huge outpour of time. I mean, it it is time consuming, but it isn't kind of a running long list. But reach out to those few folks, a personal email, connect with them and just set up these chats for 30 minutes. Asking for more can tend to be too much and less will give you, you know, you might feel a little too crunched with your time. 
30 minutes is a nice window when you want to actually like prepare some questions depending on what insight that you want to get and and have a conversation not formal absolutely casual relaxed and curious because you really want them to lead and get honest insights that you can funnel back into your marketing but it really is just sending out that initial email um, to a few folks and and trying to get some conversations in your calendar and really so that the interviewee feels comfortable that you're not going to sell them i think there's that fear that oh they're going to get me on the phone and they're going to sell me on something absolutely phrasing and positioning this conversation is important i tend not to call it an interview when i'm doing my outreach just call it a chat and kind of let them know you know you're reaching out to a few of your top customers or power users of a product let's say and you want to better understand their experience with it you can even throw in a couple questions in there let them know that there's you know no trick questions that this is not a sales pitch an incentive is always nice to offer too it kind of helps folks that are maybe reluctant um hop on the call anyway it doesn't have to be too pricey somewhere in the window of like gift card of 20 to 40 dollars let's say but just a small token as appreciation and as a thank you can always be helpful to get them on board but absolutely just kind of couching the tone of this right like you're leading the relationship here and so you want to make them feel comfortable make them feel willing to share and that they don't have to come prepared with anything you know this isn't like a a bait and switch of any kind for sure and there're no right answers i would think for this in terms of in the actual interview correct yeah no there are zero right or wrong answers it can feel that way it can absolutely feel that way when you are talking to someone and you have a hunch of the type of answer you're looking for or the type of answer you expect them to give and they don't deliver it can feel like this interview is a bust or this conversation is a dud and it's actually all information is good information oftentimes we might try to dig for something a greater meaning that really maybe isn't there for them like maybe they've done something for the simple reason of convenience and so just communicating that that's absolutely something i do at the start of a call to let them know like there's no right or wrong here whatever you say is perfect we just actually want to understand your experience and your insight you know give them a little onus and power and kind of confidence that uh, there's no consequence for saying something that we don't like yeah you're not going to get a slap on the hand because yeah. you gave us the wrong answer <laughs> yeah i mean and it sounds like a small thing but when you're in a conversation with a stranger you're a little more guarded right there's a little sense of like oh i want this person to like me also i want that incentive how long is this conversation going to be they're asking questions that i haven't really thought about i mean there's a lot that happens in this interaction in this dynamic that sort of happens on that subliminal level and so while it sounds like a small thing making someone feel comfortable isn't like they will tend to second guess or hesitate or not even kind of think deeper about something because they're just trying to spit out short answers and get out of there as quickly as possible so small but but pivotal for sure do you have specific questions that you always ask are there some 
sort of like elementary questions just to maybe make the interviewee feel more comfortable? What's the structure? I'll start the conversation with a little spiel. And by spiel, I mean like maybe a minute and a half, kind of asking their permission if we can record the interview, let them know how long it's going to be, check that if they have a hard stop or not so that they know I'm aware of their time constraints. And I also mentioned that give them a bit of context on what I'd like to get from the conversation and kind of couch things. So I might say something like, I may interrupt you if you say a word or something that really interests me and I kind of want to dig deeper. So forgive me in advance. It sort of lightens the tone a little bit, kind of preps them that I'm actively listening in the conversation. And then we'll start. My initial question will be something that I probably already know the answer to. And it's a very easy, like fact-based question. It will be something that they don't need to think much about. It will be something like, you started using this product in like six months ago, right? Something that they know that I have access to that information, or it's a very obvious um, bit of information, and it doesn't require thought for them to think through. What that does is it makes answering questions feel easy. And it sort of helps to like relax the conversation. It adds some momentum and we can kind of lead into deeper digging questions. But you always want to start with the facts before you probe deeper. It gives you kind of a rope to tug on because they've already identified like, oh yeah, I started using this thing at this particular time. And then you can say, oh, you know, what was happening around that time? What made you decide to use it? So we've gone from like closed-ended to open-ended. And that'll sort of be the pattern with things. When I introduce a new topic, start with something kind of fact-focused question, a more closed-ended, fixed answer, and then uh, dig into a more open-ended. And just kind of piecing, going through the questions that way until we're at the end. That's sort of the general flow. Is that helpful? Very helpful. You wouldn't necessarily give the interviewee the questions beforehand, correct? I tend to shy away from that only because I like, in particular with respect to copywriting, you want that sort of almost like a thinking out loud, giving the questions beforehand. If the person asks for it, and I might give an example of a question as opposed to an entire list, just to give them some confidence that there's no, you know, trick questions. But it's really nice to to kind of hear them thinking out loud, to see them thinking out loud even. It gives a really different level of connection. Like you can identify when they hesitate or if they're unsure and they kind of don't speak in linear terms. And that's really important because that's exactly the level of insight that you want. You want to unpack the confusion or the saying one thing and kind of leading to a next because that's your work as the interviewer to tease all of that out. If you give them the questions beforehand, there may be a chance that they sort of, you know, prep a little bit because they don't fully know what to expect. And so they might glance over them and kind of think through their answers. And then you're getting something that's slightly more rehearsed, which may not necessarily be as accurate as if you just kind of, you know, had them wing it a little bit. I know that the work that you do for copy hackers, because it copywriting is really you know what they do and you're looking for 
words that people use, phrases that people use that you wouldn't necessarily think of in a copywriting context. Is that correct? Yes, that and looking for what are their pain points, what are their objections to acting on a particular product, what are their hesitations, what do they want to know in order to make a particular decision, and even separate like from the sales cycle, like where are they even starting from? You know, what is their root pain? Their how much do they understand or know about this particular company or product and understanding that kind of like full trajectory. And with that naturally will come sticky copy. So words that are really catchy phrasing, really great phrasing that we can pull from them and plug into the copy, but really leading with understanding like the qualitative data that's going to shape our ability in the copywriting to move them from, you know, coming in the door as like a cold audience member all the way through to warming them up and being willing to take the next step. Does that make sense? It certainly does. And would you recommend doing this one-on-one versus in like a focus group environment where you've got several people? I definitely err on the side of one-on-one, even over, I know there's some other modalities that suggest two, one taking notes and one not this doesn't necessarily actively play a role. I mean, most people will be okay if they're being interviewed by two or at least two others are in the room and even in a focus group. But the thing that you need to be more vigilant about if you're doing a focus group is that kind of group think some people might not voice what they're experiencing and just tag on to what someone else is saying, build on an idea as opposed to clarify their own. And so it can tend to bring certain ideas to the top of the conversation and let some outliers, which may have really important nuances or key objections or really sticky copy, kind of fall to the wayside and they don't get heard. So one-on-one is something that if you can hack it, I would absolutely suggest. It just creates also a bit more of like a casual tone, you know, that it drops the formality. You set the pace and the nature and the feel of the relationship. And and that's really important. I have myself seen that in a focus group, people are much less willing to be direct in their feedback. And if they are, it's dependent on like, that's their personality type, as opposed to you as an interviewer being able to tease that out. But in a one-on-one setting, there's less room to worry about that. You know, you can kind of manage this one-on-one dynamic. You don't really have to figure out how to toggle the larger group dynamic, which can be challenging, especially sort of biasing in terms of biasing your data. So one-on-one is my absolute go-to. And this can be done over the phone as opposed to in person, even though in person is always the nicest option, but not always the most convenient, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Over the phone, there's also a bunch of other ways to get it, whether it's through doing a survey video interviews. I do that a lot in person as well. There's also kind of Amazon review mining and, you know, any sort of reviews, discussion forums. The beauty of the interview is that you get that live conversation, right? You can look for what data and insight you're looking for, but absolutely video, phone, either or. You talk about Amazon reviews and running surveys, 
talk to us a little about that in terms of what you can and you can't get via that those modalities sure Amazon review mining, and I say that just sort of any review, any product review, or maybe it's a particular book, reviews are great, That you can kind of glean them to look for sticky copy, and surveys as well will be helpful in that regard, but surveys are going to be more, you're looking more for kind of multiple choice questions, like so maybe you want people to self-segment into you know, you want your to know if your audience is just adult women or is it also like teenage women, let's say. So they're going to self-select. That would be more relevant for a survey. There are certain, if you do ask an open-ended survey question, it's best to not pair it with too many other questions. So the shorter the survey, the more likely it will get responded. And then there are certain places in the sales cycle where you're likely to get a higher response, for example, on a opt-in confirmation page, popping a survey there is always great just to understand who has come to that page and what they came to that page for. So I wouldn't expect too much in terms of general like qualitative insight from a survey. You're mostly identifying, hey, I want to know what their objections are. Let me ask this one or two questions in the survey to see. So you already have an idea of what your focus is and the survey will just help you glean those answers. And the same with Amazon reviews, that's going to give you a lot of interesting copy, interesting phrasing, and you'll have to do the legwork of sussing out, is this an objection or a problem as they see it or not? But pairing that is always helpful with the interviews, right? Because that again is like that real time, I can lead the conversation and understand the full story the survey and the review, you're just getting this like tiny, tiny window into uh, someone's world and you're pulling it entirely out of context and slipping it as, you know, suddenly this makes meaning. You always want to be cautious of how much you're relying purely on those. Um, It's always best to supplement with real-time data and then look for patterns and, and themes. How about mistakes? Our listeners love hearing about mistakes. (laughs) What kind of mistakes do people make in this arena? One I would say is this tendency to kind of like ride or die to the interview script. Having a list of questions is hugely important, but the power is really in the follow-up question. It's not often that someone will tell you everything you need to know the first time you ask it. They'll say enough that they've sort of left these loose threads and you can pull and, you know, get more insight. But I would say it's a mistake to think that you have your list of questions and you're good to go. And you're just kind of powering and running down them in the conversation. You really need to have these follow-ups and stay in conversation with the person. Just because you're asking the question doesn't mean you're going to get the answer that you want. If you're not listening to the actual answer and kind of qualifying it as you're hearing it, you're not going to know if you got something meaningful. You're just going to err on the side of, well, I asked it and that's what I got. So not having follow-up questions, thinking that the script is sufficient in and of itself. So a third would be not having clear objectives. There are a lot of 
you know, blog posts and articles and things where you can kind of download this, like, here's a ready-made list of interview questions. And I always encourage people to use those with caution because your interview objectives are sort of your goalposts in the conversation, right? Like you don't know what's going to happen in the conversation. You don't know exactly what they're going to say. And if you don't have your anchors, these three or four things that you want to know when they say something and it's kind of a curveball or they say something really juicy and you want to dig in, you're not going to do it because you know, you're not going to have the clarity of like, oh, I can pivot off script or you'll go so far off script and you'll kind of lose your place. So you really need to come prepared, like be in charge of the conversation. So I would say those are kind of some big, the three big ones, the, the script and uh, having follow-up questions and then the last one that we just covered. So that's interesting because it sounds as if very much the format that I like to run these podcasts. I mean, I have some questions, but I don't necessarily stick to them because I don't know what my guest is necessarily going to say. And there may be something that I want to dig deeper into. So are you suggesting that that's exactly what's happening in the interview structure? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. There has to be wiggle room for you to have a live experience with the person to respond and engage and actually have that conversation for sure. Because, you know, exactly as you said, you have your bullets and you have a guide that you can lean on more if you like, and you might at certain points, but there is so much room to just sort of explore with the person and see what comes up and what interests you and follow your curiosity down whatever lane they present. Yes, that's fascinating. It's so nice to hear (laughs) that that structure because it's as if you painted the exact picture of how we run these uh, these podcasts. So thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. Kudos to you because I do think that it's not a comfortable structure for a lot of folks, right? Like it's, there's a lot of room that you're leaving up to let's see what happens and being able to pivot on the fly and respond in the moment and allow kind of organic pauses. All of that is something that I don't think folks necessarily realize that is a muscle that requires flexing and it's not an easy feat for sure. I always talk to my audience about exercising their marketing muscle. So this is part of that marketing muscle. I really like that. I think a lot too has to do with listening. You've got to really listen to what the other person is saying because then you're responding and not being sort of too automated in terms of how you respond to that. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. A huge part of the interview conversation and even in copywriting, right, is or marketing in general is reflecting to the audience themselves so that they see themselves in your words. And it starts in that initial conversation. The segue from one moment to the next is often reflecting back and kind of digging a little deeper. So listening is huge. And it's something that I know I had to learn to do better because I always thought I was a great listener. And when I entered and started my counseling training, I realized that I'm, like most, I would say, selectively good. You know, I listen when it's interesting 
And part of my brain is like busy doing other things when I'm less interested. And it takes kind of like pulling yourself into the conversation and actually listening to the words the person is saying. And when that happens, you will find naturally that there are moments where you're sort of like, oh, hold on. I I don't know that I fully understand what you mean because you're kind of allowing yourself to enter that conversation and and have that real-time dynamic. So listening is for sure huge, huge, huge. When you said selective, I just thought of my husband. There's selective (laughs) hearing that I I think this happens with many couples. Mm Yeah. I mean, I know that that story is... It's an old story with my husband too, but it's such a real thing. I mean, it's something I think we have to learn against. Selective hearing is just so much a part of the human makeup and especially with all these like devices and distractions and it really is, you know, fighting against that to flex the listening muscle. I know that you have a secret must ask question, interview question. What are the chances of you sharing that with us? (laughs) All right. It's a question that I use as a follow-up. And it's particularly powerful because it gets at the experience and sort of the emotional level of things, which is where you get really interesting marketing messages without actually calling attention to the fact that, hey, I'm about to ask about your feelings when you you know phrase something that way, people are either turned off or distanced naturally because who wants to talk about their feelings with a stranger? So the question that is my absolute go-to is, what was that like for you? And it is a hugely powerful question. I mean, it's so open-ended, but it's also pointing to a experience that there is an invitation there to help me understand your experience. I'm putting myself aside and out of the equation. And I really want to climb inside what was going on there for you. But it is kind of phrased in a subtle enough way that it doesn't ring of, oh, we're about to dig deep. And this is going to be really invasive. And I'm really kind of probing. All of those are not so friendly and inviting. So a lot of questions, this will be my follow-up. What was that like for you? That's one of my must ask, always ask, ask many times in a single conversation question. I love it. I know that our listeners are probably chomping at the bit to find out how they can find out more about your services. So let us know. Yeah. So hop on over to my website, hannahshamji.com. And you can grab a quick download there that should give you some insight into entering this world of customer interviews and conversations and navigating that territory. And I am sometimes active on Twitter, but all of that is my handle and all of that is accessible through my website. That's your best bet. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. So people have the correct spelling, et cetera. Awesome. And- If you were to leave our listeners with a golden nugget, Hannah, what would that be? Mm, I would say to not be afraid of slowing down the conversation. This came up recently in a coaching session I was doing with another copywriter to not kind of be afraid to allow these spaces that it's okay for it to go off script or for you to ask the same question 
in another way or to kind of stumble a little bit. This doesn't have to be a perfect, you know, narrative. It really is allowing this like human interaction and this human dynamic. I would really encourage that, like slow down and it's okay to not have the whole conversation mapped out to a T. There's many times where I phrase something in like probably a really confusing way or I ask a question with a slight nuance and I will call myself out on it because I actually do want to understand more of where they're coming from. And so with that right intention and that kind of tuned in, people are very forgiving. So slow down and kind of stay present in those conversations. And I am willing to wager that you will be surprised at what you find out. What wisdom. Hey, (laughs) listeners, you really got so much today. I hope you took notes. And thank you so much, Hannah. And thank you all for taking time out of your precious day to listen to this interview. And I sincerely hope that it sparks some ideas you can use to sell more books. Here's wishing you much book marketing success. The time is now to take action and finally build your book selling empire. And the great news is that Susan is here to help you. Visit bookmarketingmentors.com and sign up for a free 15-minute book marketing strategy session with Susan. She'll help you discover your first steps to marketing and selling your book. Only those who take action are rewarded, so visit bookmarketingmentors.com and we'll see you again next week. Hi, it's Susan again with some more marketing tips. In the last few episodes, we've been talking about the secret motivators, seven secret motivators that help your customer buy. In the last episode, we talked about the second secret, and that is the secret for excitement and fun. Today, we're going to talk about the third secret, and that is the need for easy. In our time-pressed, stress-filled society, Many individuals are motivated by a need for life to be easy, or at least easier than it currently is. This often boils down to convenience. These customers seek out products and services that can save them time, money, and effort. These are the people who want merchandise that they don't have to think about. The prepackaged meal that you can throw in the microwave to speed up eating time, the software that automatically updates, the digital recorders to record all the best TV shows one season at a time. The need for easy is especially prominent in the business-to-business community. With an ever-increasing number of new and emerging businesses appearing every year, entrepreneurs are looking for any and everything that can make them better business people without having to expend any extra effort. The need for easy is a huge buying motivator for entrepreneurs wanting results in half the time and with half the effort. Making it easy for your customer starts right from the very first minute you engage with them. Is your advertising easy to read and understand? Keep copy to a minimum, use lots of pictures and design your marketing, especially your website pages, so questions get answered before the customer asks them. Offering options makes it easy. If you want to see the master of the need for easy, 
you need look no further than your local staple store. This office supply chain even features an easy button. Every staples ad prominently features a product with the product's name, picture, price, and the most relevant benefits. And that's it. Easy to look at, easy to understand, and with multiple purchasing venues available, easy to buy. A customer can look at an ad, go online, go to the local brick and mortar store, or pick up the phone for the products they want to be delivered. What could be easier than that? And you know how Amazon has spoiled us. It does much the same thing. It makes it easy. The easier it is for you to buy, the more you're likely to do business with that company. So what can you take away? What can you do? What can you look at in terms of your own marketing and your own product or service delivery? How easy is what you offer your customers? Next time, we're going to talk about the fourth secret, the need for importance. So until then, remember to keep exercising your marketing muscle. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.